Welcome, Merry Christmas. If we've not met, my name is John Dixon. I'm the senior minister here at St. Andrews Roosevelt. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Uh, some of you will know that I spend a lot of time in uh, the United States of America, and over the years I've grown rather fond of American Christianity, which I know sounds implausible to Australians because of the news we get of American Christianity, uh, but it's actually a beautiful thing. However, I must admit that my very first experience of American Christianity was every Australian's worst nightmare. Uh, I uh, was fortunate or unfortunate enough to hear your all-American TV evangelist, Pierre Cadan suit, slick back hair, a beautiful southern drawl, and he preached a message that certainly got my attention. God is a God of prosperity, he said, and he wants nothing in your life but a prosperous existence. I was a struggling musician at the time, so I kind of was interested in a little more prosperity than I was getting at the time, and I listened. He had a special deal going this day. He had what he called a prayer cloth that he was willing to give to me uh, and all the other uh, uh, members of the church and, uh, and a viewing audience. It looked like a tea towel, but he promised that he'd prayed over every one of them and he'd send it to you with every $1,000 donation free of charge. <laughs> exactly his words. And he said, what would happen is if you placed it in your pantry, you'd always have enough food. Place it in your garage, you'd always have the cars of your dreams. Uh, place it somewhere else in your house, and you'd end up with the house of your dreams. Because God is a God of prosperity. And to prove that the magic worked, he showed us some footage of his own car collection and houses, and they were magnificent. God is a God of prosperity, and he wants nothing in your life but to prosper it. Well, contrast that picture of God with the one I was confronted with just a few weeks later when I was speaking in the little country town of Kula in this pub. And I was asked to speak on the topic of God's love for the world. And I had hardly opened my mouth on the topic when this woman right up the back yelled out, how can you say God loves us when he takes people from our lives? Stopped me short. I thanked her for a comment. I moved on with my uh, message. And I could see this silhouetted figure stand up and walk straight toward the stage and sat down right in the front and just gave me what felt like the death stare for the rest of uh, the evening. After the event, I uh, went and obviously I sat down with her and I said, you know, what's the story? And she said that she'd lived a pretty bad life. She's willing to admit that. But she said, I just recently lost the only people I'm close to in my family to a terrible train car collision out in the country. She said, God is punishing me. He is a tyrant. Don't speak to me about a God of love. It was very confronting. Two completely contradictory images of God, firmly believed, based on real life experience, how could you ever know what God was like? Now, in a uh, smaller way, I imagine the same is true here today. Some of you have had a great year, you've come to church, you sort of feel a kind of positive vibe toward the Almighty, toward the universal spirit, or however you imagine it, and you're here with great a great sense of positivity about these things. You're projecting your experience onto the Almighty. 
And then I imagine it's equally true that some of you have had such bad years, you can't help but project resentment onto the Almighty. You feel God is distant, maybe God's not there, maybe the whole thing is a projection. And this is a very common thing. You find a lot of people say God is just a projection of our own longings for something. It was uh, Sigmund Freud who was the first to propose a theory that said, indeed, God is a projection of our infantile longings for the great parent in the sky. You can see how it works, right? The father of psychotherapy said that we sort of feel detached from our parents and we long for the big daddy in the sky. And what do you know? People say they believe in a daddy in the sky. That's the theory. And tons of people believe it as a result of what Sigmund Freud said. The thing that is less well known is that people in Freud's day replied to him, but what about your atheism? Why isn't that a projection? You're always going on about your overbearing Austrian father. Maybe your atheism is a projection of your aversion to your father figure. And actually, this now has psychological credibility. There's a book I've just started reading, an amazing book by Paul Witz, who is professor of psychology at New York University, and he's done a full-blown analysis of atheism in the Western population, and has actually proposed a theory based on pretty good data that, in fact, you are more likely to disbelieve in God if you've had an unwanted disjunction with your parents. It may be... I don't want to push it too hard. You go and read the data for yourself. It may be that atheism, as much as theism, is a projection. So we're back to the same question. How would you ever know? Now, far more measured, far more reasonable than Sigmund Freud's proposal was that of one of the smartest men ever to live. You may never have heard of Xenophanes, but he was the great Greek intellectual before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, those guys that we have heard of. And Xenophanes said two things that I think are really interesting and far more subtle than Freud's thesis. He said, God is a logical deduction, but religion is probably a projection of human longing. And he said this five or so centuries before Christ. He said, of course, God is a logical deduction, but that's about all we can know. He reasoned like this. He said, this rationally ordered universe we live in has produced rational minds. It is irrational to propose any rational cause or accident to be behind that rational universe producing rational minds. So it's far better to posit a rational mind behind this rational order of things. But he said, you can know no more. Religion is a projection of our longings, he said. And, and the basis of his theory was, as he observed the religions available in ancient Greece, religious practices tended to look like the people or people group that produced those rituals and so he said, religion is projection. God himself, perhaps not. Now, it may surprise you to know that Christianity would agree with Xenophanes. Both that every human being can work out there is an eternal, immaterial mind behind the created order, and that you can't know anything more by rational speculation. It's all guesswork. It's a little bit like saying, you can, uh, if you read a mathematical equation, 
you can intuit that there's an intelligence behind it, but you can't know anything about the mathematician just by looking at the equation. All you can tell is intelligence. Or if you see a beautiful Roseville house, you can posit an architect, but you can't tell what the architect is actually like just by looking at the house. Or if you prefer a different analogy, uh, when you hear a beautiful symphony, you can know you're in the presence of a creative genius that produced the symphony, but unless there are lyrics attached, unless there's words to go with the music, how do you know anything about the composer's longings, dreams, and intentions? And here is why Christmas is so interesting in the history of ideas. Because Christmas says there are lyrics to the melody of the universe. You can uh, know the mathematician behind the equations of the cosmos. The architect has knocked on the door and come into history. You can know God, not by speculation, but by his own self-disclosure. Now, I'm not just making this up. Uh, in, you know, often you hear Christmas messages and the priest just gets to say whatever he thinks Christmas is this year. But actually, this is what our texts just read tell us, is the heartbeat of Christmas, the kind of meaning of Christmas. The Matthew 1 text said all this took place, all this Mary and Joseph stuff, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The meaning of the story, according to Matthew, is that this is God with us. Same deal in John's Gospel, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this remarkable statement, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The punchline of the Christmas story is, while you can't guess what God is like, God could enter into our world in flesh, in history, and reveal what God is like. Let me try and um, illustrate how profound this is if it's true. And even if you don't believe any of this stuff, just go with me in this thought experiment. Try right now, imagine what my father looked like. Now, I know some of you can do it because I've shown pictures of my dad before. I lost him when I was quite young, so you need to picture him as a reasonably young man. Now, some of you are sort of thinking, you're, you're looking at me, and those of you who are sort of Nice, uh, thinking positive thoughts about what my dad must have looked like. Uh, others, maybe not so much. But you, you're taking guesses. You're thinking, okay, I can sort of work back from the product to the, uh, to the father, but you can't really know. Now, if I got you to sketch down your mind's picture of my father and you handed it in to me, I guess, well, there'd be 200 or so people here in the building. We'd have 200 guesses. Some of them may be beautiful works of art because some of you, no doubt, are creative. Some of them might be really intelligent guesses because some of you are intelligent. Uh, but in the end, an intelligent, creative guess is still a guess. The only way out of the guessing game is for me to show you a picture of my very cool dad with my gorgeous mum. 
Here is a revelation to end the speculation. This photo makes plain what was already a guess. It doesn't matter how good your guess was, this trumps it. Now, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. The Christmas story says that Jesus is to God what that photo was to my dad. A disclosure, a self-disclosure, the photo of God. As the text says, He is God with us. He is the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. That's the punchline of this lovely story of Christmas. And I put it to you that this is both a challenge and a comfort. It's a challenge in the sense that it means we're not at liberty to fashion an image of God according to our preferences, which is precisely what the televangelist is doing, right? Televangelist prefers more money, projects that onto God, and tells you God is a God of prosperity. If God has disclosed himself, then cherry-picking God, making a preferred God, is exposed for what it really is. It's self-flattery in the end, isn't it? It's God must be like my favorite thoughts, One of the very good U.S. preachers, and there are rather a lot of them, actually, Tim Keller, uh, one of the most famous preachers in America, uh, based in New York, uh, tweeted this just the other day. If God is real, why do we assume he will perfectly align with our views? If he never challenges our assumptions, you may have a made-up God. We should expect God to challenge us on what we think is right somewhere in our lives, economically, socially, sexually, and personally. It seems to me a pretty good statement of the challenge that is Christmas. But there's also a comfort, a profound comfort, for people whose image of God is not just fashioned according to preference, but is damaged because of life experience. Christmas says there's another way of envisaging God. And what do we see when we look at Christ as the photo of God? We see things we could never have invented left to our own preferences and psychology. Think through the story. What does the manger tell us about the image of God? It tells us that God has come humbly to serve us rather than conquer us. Surely that's the meaning of the manger. The manger is not a special throne cot for the Son of God, even though we only use it at Christmas time, the word manger, but manger is just the animal feeding trough. I'm waiting for a good translation of the Bible that comes to that bit and says, and they laid him in an animal feeding area. It doesn't have the poetry, but it does have the reality. And if you track manger through to the cross in the story of Christ, you see the same thing. God has come to serve Give himself for us so that we might be brought back to God. Or think of the fact that in the story, uh, not read to us this morning, but well enough known, that the Holy Family was hunted down by Herod the Great, the despotic king of the time. Now, we know a lot about Herod the Great from outside the Bible as well as inside the Bible, and he was a despot of incredible magnitude. And what we read in the gospel of him hunting down the babies of Bethlehem to get rid of this supposed newborn king perfectly fits with what we know from outside sources of the time. But here's the thing. In the story, the Holy Family has to flee Israel and go down to Egypt. 
to escape. It is not too much to say Jesus started life as a refugee. I don't mean to be political at this point, well, maybe just a little, but (laughs) God in the flesh was pursued by a tyrant and had to find shelter elsewhere. This at least tells us, despite the reputation of the church for sometimes being a bully, God is not a bully. God would rather be hunted down, pursued and persecuted, than push us around. Or think finally of the first worshippers of Jesus. Who are they? Lowly shepherds and wise men, magi. They are foreigners. That's the point in the story. They are foreigners. This part of the snapshot of God at least tells us God is into everyone. God loves everyone. The high and the low, those from the east and the west, the pious Virgin Mary and the godless Sigmund Freud. He loves everyone. This story is for everyone God enters our world so that we don't have to guess. We can look at the photo of God in Jesus Christ. And friends, if all that is true, indeed, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.